So the uh, first question that's been uh, put to uh, the panel is, uh, people have enjoyed Rumi's and Ibn Arabi's poetry just for poetry, and sometimes they take them out of context. Thus, for example, the same thing is missing in the translation of Rumi's book, that is, Rumi's identity as a Muslim. We all know that both Rumi and Ibn Arabi are immersed in their Islamic tradition and always refer to the Quran. So the question is, do you think this is because people prefer spirituality rather than religion? Doesn't spirituality, uh, doesn't, is, isn't spirituality uh, something that flourishes from religious traditions? Please have a comment. I know. Well, <laughs> I could put the question to Fatima, sure. who who actually addressed this quite eloquently. I thought in her in her workshop. Thank you. Um, can you hear me? Is that is that good? Okay. Um, well, yes. I I address this question because um, very often when I talk about Rumi, um, some people in the audience ask me. Um, are you really telling us that he was a Muslim? <laughs> and um, so, you know, my answer is usually that um, if you um, read what he has written is so deeply immersed in the uh, Islamic and general cultural um, milieu of the, in which he grew up and, and got his education and his, his relationship with his teachers and so on, but also in terms of allusions that are in, uh, not only in the Masnavi directly addressed, but in allusions that there are in the Ghazals, that um, often very frequently he's really giving commentary on different verses and uh, ideas that come from the heart of the Quran and the Hadith. So um, what usually my argument is that he doesn't go around Islam, you know, and then they ask, so why does he, how could he be so free in terms of interpreting things and approaching things? And my answer is that he doesn't go around it, he walks through it, but he's able to um, not be tied to it in the sense that, uh, in a literal sense. And then I usually give this example that there is a very short Quranic verse. Uh, which is um, in the Quran that says uh, God is speaking in, his, in, in this verse, uh, according to the Muslims, that says, we sent down the zikr, and uh, pardon my Persian pronunciation, and, and we, that's God, will protect it. And usually, uh, the word zikr means remembrance, and usually uh, uh, commentators have interpreted the word zikr as the Quran itself, because the Quran does refer to itself as zikr and remembrance. So Rumi is speaking about this verse. He quotes it. He says, Mufassiran guyant in dar Quran The commentators say this is about the Quran. In nikus, because that's fine. Amma inniz hast ke dar to shogi wa talabi nahadein wa hafiz an And he says, 
But there is this interpretation too, that God says, I have put in you a quest, a longing, and I am going to protect that. So using a verse of the Quran, he's actually opening it up to all people, all humanity. So I think this is a very interesting example of coming from within the tradition and being completely immersed in it, but able to open it up. He loves it, in fact, so much that he doesn't want it to stay narrow and um, limited. Well, thank you for that. Is there anyone who would like to uh, respond to that in addition? Mahmoud. Well, uh, this is a very famous question in every Sufi meetings we are facing uh, from, especially uh, Muslim friends, uh, they are asking these kind of questions. Uh, I think uh, we must consider, we should consider the verticality and horizontality. Uh, if we looked at Ibn al-Arabi's and all other Sufis' books, they always mention about Muhammadan Logos, Hakikatul Muhammadiyya. All knowledge, Ibn al-Arabi says, all my knowledge comes from Muhammadan reality. Without Muhammadan reality, I have nothing, he confessed. Rumi, in his poetry, Man Bandai Qur'anam, it says, I am the humble servant of Qur'an. Everything which I am explaining to you comes from the spirit of the Qur'an. So in one sense, we have to confess that without patronage, under the patronage of a Logos, you will not receive any divine flashes according to mystical knowledge. So Sufis are following Muhammadan Logos. So in a sense, in a vertical sense, they are Muhammadian. They are Muhammadi. Let's come to the verticality, uh, sorry, horizontality. In a historical sense, there is a religion in a social context. It is called Islam, and the followers of this religion call themselves Muslims. This is sometime, it is not coincident with social Muslims, with vertical Muhammadanism. That's why some non-Muslim friends, they thought that to be a Sufi, to be a follower of Ibn al-Arabi, no need to be a Muslim or Muhammadian, which is wrong. According to Ibn al-Arabi's ideas, is wrong. And same fault by Muslims, they thought that they are Muslim, they claimed that they are Muslims, which means automatically they have the gnosis, they have the knowledge. This is false also. This is, both sides is wrong. Yes, Sufis are following Muhammadan Logos. But all Muslims are aware of this? This is the question. 
So we are inviting Muslims to be Mohammedan as well. In Quran, God says, Ya ayyuhallazina amenu, aminu. Oh, oh, you believers, believe again. Well, I think this is a, a very good question. And a, a, would you like to continue, Pablo? Just, just to express yeah. my understanding that the question is very tricky. And it refers to a certain understanding of the meaning of religion and to a certain understanding of the meaning of spirituality. So it can be faced from many points of view. One of them could be inclusive and say religion understand it, uh, under a certain point of view is the same as spirituality or the opposite, or no, or you can say, you can understand as, as two separate realities. Very tricky because it's a terminolo terminological trick. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think this is just such a great question because it speaks to the theme of this conference, teachings for the modern world. And the next question, uh, is really a continuation of the same theme. Uh, what do you think that these mystics can offer our current modern world? What are their contributions to the modern world? How can one be a mystic in the world? And, and perhaps, and perhaps in, 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 in the context of the previous question, um, and you know, some people might say we are in a modern world, a postmodern world, even, and some people might even say a post-religious world. How how do you understand the, the, this this confluence of uh, of tradition and and modernity? Nargis, take a, take a jab at that. Um, based on the previous responses. Uh, again, this uh, you know it is it is tricky in terms of those kind of bi sort of polarities and dichotomous ways that we are uh, trained and and conditioned to think. Uh, but speaking you know, sort of straight uh, to the question, I think I'm sure all my colleagues will offer you know different things. But one of the things that clearly comes out of our, our conference and the long study of many of these giant figures, in this case Ibn Arabi and Rumi, is that uh, a lesson to be on the one hand rooted, that Fatima alluded to, and be able to take flights that are unlimited and uncircumscribed and, uh, and not, uh, not fettered by any of that. But again, that rootedness, Whatever that, you know, one interprets that to be, whether one is talking about a tradition, about religion, a lot of these have so many historical layers. And the previous question, in, in fact, answered it by saying, is it because people prefer spirituality to religion? And I thought, you know, it sort of answered partially its question. So again, it's a question of one's liking, but the idea that to take those unfettered flights uh, none of these people uh, felt that they needed to abandon their tradition. Uh, they didn't feel that uh, their tradition fettered them so that they couldn't have those unfettered flight on the one hand or any questions of inclusiveness and universality. Uh, they were not seen as mutually excluded or exclusive, uh, and they found a great deal of strength 
uh, of conviction from these very traditions, no matter what these traditions were, they felt comfortable to have one interpretation and another and a different and have a multivalence of it in so many different ways. So I think that, again, to think of ourselves in this postmodern world where we think of sort of fragmentation, there was enough, you know, it's not a new situation. There, were, there was fragmentation at that time when you talk about the situation of Ibn Arabi and Rumi, talk, think about the Mongol invasion, and a lot of you know, basic ground is being moved from under one's feet. And so one can talk about fragmentation, and within that to, to somehow make whole was how they went for their tradition. Uh, and I think that that's one of the, the lessons that I feel needs to be remembered as well. Jim. I, uh, whatever I say is going to be just a commentary on Pablo's remark. <laughs> but the irony of the question is really profound. And partly it just reflects American categories and what gets translated and what doesn't. But there's a much deeper irony there, which is that both Rumi and Ibn Arabi were the supreme representatives, not of something called mysticism, but of the theological and religious learning of their day, in particular Rumi. I don't know of anyone else in Konya who was, I, I mean, you get this question both from people who like the spirituality side and from people who prefer the religion side, if you go to certain Muslim countries. And what was important there, I think, and this comes to the modernity question, is for 600 years, following both these figures, Islam went from being the cult of the areas that were largely part of the original Arab conquests, almost within a century or two, to spreading throughout Asia and eventually in, in South, southeastern Europe, uh, and became the world religion. And it didn't just happen to become the world religion. People created the Islamic humanities, that is, new forms of expression of the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith in their own languages, in that time, most of them not particularly learned, but poets, writers, musicians, and so forth. So it was this un unimaginable burgeoning of creativity and religion throughout that 600 years. Mahmoud just uh, gave us a beautiful aperçu on one part of that in the Ottoman world, uh, several centuries after the time of both of these figures. So that creativity came to an end largely due to colonialism. But the challenge to all of us today is given the universality of the religious outlook of these two figures and of the uh, figures, some better known and some lesser known, who were their heirs and created this Islam as a world religion, is that um, we live in a world now today where each of us, Muslim or non-Muslim, has the responsibility to create out of that verticality to discover that dimension and to create what is necessary to communicate that to others. And as we saw in the passage that I brought from my section today, that everyone's doing that. Um, we can't not recreate in light of al-haq, and that's our human destiny. And the more you learn about not only the Islamic tradition, but about any other tradition, the more you discover that this one reality the Quran says in many, many places uh, that those who understand something, I wouldn't translate in believers, but rather those who have faith, have faith. Uh, that the way you know someone actually has faith 
is that they're aware of the presence of God, his revelations, his messengers, and of the angelic connections, all of the elements of that vertical connection. And the Quran, it's a God and the Quran says, we don't distinguish between any of those. So there's a very simple resolution to that. It has nothing to do with spirituality or religion or false oppositions. Just find the people who don't make that distinction, mm -hmm. and those are the people who can see things clearly. And that's the Quran's teaching. Okay. Thank you. I would like to add that um, there is, uh, there's a great temptation to take these concepts or definitions like religion, mysticism, and treat them as if they were wholesale, complete, unchanging, uncontested, and they were moving to us. So that causes this anxiety that what seemed to be created then and called mysticism well, we call it mysticism, as you said, we have called it, you know, just the religion of Islam, that that's given to us. So what are we going to do with this in our time? Well, the truth is that these are social historical realities that have been going through constant change from generation to generation. And it's not, it's going to be contested. Again, we're now talking about whether the word religion itself, what does it mean? Can we, you know, what should we call, we put a whole range of these practices under that rubric. And so, you know, it's really all open to um, thinking about what we mean about these concepts, which we sometimes assume get to us unchanged and therefore may not be suitable for us, whereas they are uh, uh, dynamic and changing realities that are being contested again and again by practicing generations in various parts of the world. <coughs> Cecilia. There's no doubt that both Ibn Arabi and Rumi were completely rooted in the Quran, in the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and in the reality of human perfection, which is personified in Muhammad. Uh, for us today, we see Ibn Arabi and Rumi as a bridge, if you like, between Muslims and non-Muslims, because the universal aspects of their writings can be understood by anybody, by all of humanity, and that is a message which is very important to be put across. At the same time, for Muslims, because they go completely to the root, to the origin, to the source, they bring out the true meaning of the religion of Islam, which essentially means surrender. So certainly they were very rooted in that, and there is no denying that. But at the same time, they have a message for the whole of, of humanity. And I'd just like to read a few lines, if I may, from the Masnavi, um, which I, I already read out at our, our workshop just now. Because so much of what is termed religion, Islam, spirituality, can be misunderstood, and it's just down to our own conception of what these things are, rather than allowing the truth 
to manifest and arise within us. So Rumi says, the treasure must be sought and bewilderment is the ruin where it lies buried. What you conceive to be the treasure, any such conception causes you to lose the real treasure. Fancies and opinions are like the state of cultivation. Treasure is not found in cultivated spots. In the state of cultivation, there is existence and contrariety. The non-existence spurns everything that exists. After these beautiful words, uh, I have to uh, shut up, but... Uh, <laughs> I would like to add some minor points. Yes to spirituality. I am a little bit a radical spiritualist, especially to the Islamic world. Since the beginning of this century, because of some political developments, Islamic world lost their tradition, and especially young generations became more political than traditional. What unspiritual Islam offered and created, we will see, we saw just six or seven blocks far down in 9-11. What spiritual Islam offered and produced in order to see it, please go to Metropolitan Museum now and there is a Islamic art section and you will see what Islamic spirituality created. Thank you. Mm. Yes. I, I felt the need of uh, reversing the question. Would you please remember us the question, the original question? Because it was something about how could we uh, relate to mystical experience in the modern world. Yes, it was um, <clears throat> what do you think that those mystics can offer for our current modern world? What are their contributions? And how can one be a mystic in the world? Ah, that, that the last bit of it is my concern for answering. I thought that immersed in the presence of the mysterious presence of reality as we are and as people has always been my question uh, formulating otherwise would be how can possibly how can we possibly avoid mystical experience <laughs> thank you <laughs> wonderful any more comments i think I think that question went went a long way so the next question from the uh, uh, for the panel is um, we are all in an English-speaking country at a conference at a time of great intersection of languages and culture. Can you say something about the ability of English to expand um, on the kind of ideas all of you expressed here? English teacher is the 
<laughs> We're in an English-speaking country at a conference at a time of great intersection of languages and culture. Can you say something about the ability of English to expand and take on the kinds of ideas all of you expressed here? Michael. Stephen, Stephen, you're next. I, I'm struck by um, uh, Ibn al-Arabi's uh, uh, philosophy of translation. Uh, the Tarjuman al-Ashwaq, which means translation of desires or, or longings, um, is also reflects uh, the notion that meaning is in the translation, that meaning is not a static in one place. And he talks about how everywhere the beloved sets, um, uh, uh, sets foot, um, blossoms up as a garden, and as soon as she leaves, it becomes a desert again. So in terms of meaning, Every time, uh, the meaning is in constant motion, and one of the motions that we saw that we've been discussing is the fact that at this period, um, as, as was just mentioned, the, uh, the meanings, um, the, uh, the vernacular languages, non-Arabic languages, were embracing and finding ways not of simply translating in the sense of taking from one language to another something which is there, but uh, creating that com living conversation in which the, um, the, uh, the second language somehow becomes uh, another site for the gardening of uh, uh, where the beloved steps. And, um, Yaroslav Stetkevich, uh, one of the great uh, scholars and translators of Arabic poetry, once said that, um, and I think this is in the question, which is uh, so thoughtful, that in order to translate, one has to, uh, in some sense, um, that the, what is translated has to enrich the, transla uh, the language into which it's translated. There's no existing English that can receive these meanings. And it's part of that creativity for English to grow and shape um, as it does. And I think that's um, that. Uh, one more thing about translation: um, it shouldn't only be for for people that teach um, foreign languages to care about translation. I often think that translation is something we do all the time. Uh, every time we have a discussion with a friend and we think we're talking the same language, and we say, oh, you meant that? Yeah, and it took hours of conversation to finally figure out what was meant, and sometimes a lot of uh, uh, difficult feelings can get brought up. So life, it, life itself, I think, in Ibn al-Arbi's thought, is a constant process of translation and a constant uh, and a joy um, to be engaged in that. Um, I just want to add a few reflections because uh, unlike all the other panelists here, I've spent rather a long period of time 
working with foreign students learning English. And I often wondered why, why I got into it in the first place, because it was, as it were, accidental. Uh, when I first started in the 70s, English could not have been described at that point, really, as a world language. Uh, now, absolutely no doubt, it is a world language and rapidly changing. And I want to add one thing to what Michael said. I mean, it's, it's perfectly obvious to all of us that there have been various forms of English perfectly adequate. The kind of language spoken in America and is already multiple from West Coast to East Coast. It is added another dimension by all the Englishes which exist in Britain. I think we have to be very careful to realize that even on this kind of horizontal level, there are as many languages as there are peoples and individuals. So it, this is a highly complex process where there is an evolution of expression which is taking place constantly. And the language itself is just a vehicle which is being transformed in the process of expressing meaning. And there is no doubt in my mind, having come into the sort of publishing of Ibn Arabi, that uh, when a book appears in English, which has been locked up, as it were, in the Arabic language, it is an actual event. Uh, it's a bit like a a bomb going off. If you're, if you're near it, you feel it, you hear it, uh, maybe other people will hear about it. But the event itself is absolutely real and is transformative because there is something about this meaning which is desperately trying to convey itself to all of us because it's our very substance. It's, we can't avoid it. I, I mean, I agree completely that we, 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 how can we possibly avoid mystical experience? It's the very substance of living as a human being. It's not usually talked about like that because people think of wonderful mystical states and so on and so on. But the reality is that we're constantly being involved in being educated in the reality that we actually are. Every human being is going through this process, knowingly or unknowingly. So to come across these two giants who are wonderful turjamans, wonderful interpreters, and as Pablo mentioned this morning, Ibn Arabi says a, a turjaman, an interpreter, is somebody who unites several languages. <laughs> So that's a wonderful image to have because that means that, that uh, these, these people that we speak about are really uh, bringers of meaning in a way that is completely without uh, limit. And everybody who reads what they write is participating in this expression of meaning. Um, well, I think there's little to add to all of that. Um, 
but I just would like to say that I, I think many of us um, just growing up as a dictionary generation um, very often think of translation in terms of equivalency. Like we could find, are we going to be able to find something in the target language into which we are translating that is an equivalent or identical to the original. So very often there is this fear that the translation is going to be a pale copy of the original um, or uh, this the whole notion of original. Uh, which is different from whatever else is generated. I think Michael put it very nicely that in, in this interaction with the text, meaning regenerates itself, and also in the interaction of reader with the text, that happens again and again. Um, so I, uh, when uh, in classroom we talk about translation, and usually one of the great fears that the students have is what is going to be lost in translation my response is that translation is a lost and found place. So it's not just losing, <laughs> you in fact find a lot there as a result of interacting with this text and what you produce um, as a result of it, which is pure uh, uh, creativity. It's not copying something. Um, but I would like to add a point which is, I think, irrelevant here, which is if the voices of the people we need to be heard are not known and have not found a space for themselves in, the new, in this target culture, having good translations are going to be, go to waste. Because if you didn't know, for example, that Farouk Farouk lived in Iran in the 20th century and wrote some of the most daring, imaginative expressions of, of her life, you're not going to look for the translation that you know Amin Banani and Joshua Kessler did, which is fabulous. So in some ways, it seems to me that for those of us who have access, whether academic or non-academic, one way would be to graft those voices on our own and somehow bring it into the culture so that these names and these works find uh, recognition. And as soon as they are given a little room, they you know, grow their own roots and they grow and they their own life. And then the, the good translations obviously become very, very important to you. I, I just want to spin off from that a little bit further, and again, with the theme of verticality. And note that one of the ways when you read Ibn Arabi Rumi that you actually will know you understand it is if you can see the haq, the reality that they're talking about, in all the other equivalent forms around you. So I can still remember the point at which, having fallen in love with Rumi, I suddenly realized that Emily Dickinson was writing Rumi's quatrains, and that Walt Whitman was writing his own Masnavi, <laughs> and that Rilke was writing his own Divana Shams. And for, so that they ceased to be different languages and began to seem the same with this wonderful chronic term, Montic, this, this communication, which is, for Ibn Arabi, each of us is a Tarjaman because we're taking the divine signs and returning them to their source. We can't help it, that's what we do. So it's very important not to get bogged down to just language of English or French or German or Arabic, but to realize that uh, in our own day, and, and I can still remember the time when I thought, you never mentioned these things in the old days in academia. I don't think any 
some of you may remember Ro Holbrook, uh, who was at some of our conferences and so forth. And I remember when she came to Paris, and we were having some. She was living nearby us. So we were having a kid at time, and and I'd seen this amazing. It wasn't a good movie, but the theme song of it was a, was really amazing. And I said to her, you know, this is amazing. This song and this silly movie really makes me feel like the same equivalent of reading Rumi. And she said. Well, of course, if Rumi were around today, he'd be doing rock music, you know, <laughs> at the time. And uh, no, no words could be true. You know, I might be, we might call it a different name now. This was 30-odd years ago. But it was the first other academic I'd met who actually admitted such things. And it was a liberating moment for me. Um, and so all artists are the creators. They're making, they're creating this connection. Some are more effective at it, some are others. And you know, you and this is people don't realize that it's after this time that people basically created the tarika system. It's when the customs of ziara, the, the social institutions that we associate with traditional Islam, as as uh, Moon keeps reminding us from this time, most of those were created very creatively in this period, this post-Mongol period that they really spread all over the Muslim world. So we're institution creators. We're you know, if, if you decide that this particular film will communicate something better to people of other languages, that's what these great people were doing. And it can, it just takes all sorts of forms. If I can be forgiven, just one other thing, because we're going to have dance and music tonight. But I, I wish you could have been there when the, Pierre Laurie is another French scholar that a lot of us know and so forth. And I remember about 12 years ago that I was in the pressing divorce and everything, and he was. His wife taught dance therapy. And so he and I were Shanghai to go out to this uh, monastery in the country where they had a drummer and you know all of these very gymnastic, aerobic people who were going to learn the dance therapy and everything. And here are these two uptight, super uptight scholars, you know, <laughs> in the midst of all these, you know, very, you know, we're 10, 15 years older than all of the people in the class. But boy, did I learn something about overcoming the nafs that I'll never forget by having to be there. I mean, not by having to be there, because you can't be depressed when you're dancing to this really good music, you know. And so, and I mentioned that just because something like, it was a Rumi, you know, it's Sultan Valet and others who created all the instruments of the Medlevia and their music and their dance and their whirling and so forth. But if you do it, it communicates something to you that words might never get to you. So whether it be dance or film or music or just uh, new forms of sohbet, uh, sohbet, and so forth, what we're being asked to do always, as people did back then, is to create new ways to make that connection between the hakika and its form and, and its expression and to communicate them. And uh, that's why when I come to these things, I always want to see, where are the young people here? Because if you don't have the young people, this will die out just like other things have died out. It's, We're right it's, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've spotted you guys. <laughs> well, we have about five minutes left. I almost hesitate to plunge into another question. But are there any parting comments about this matter of Ibn Arabi and Rumi and this meeting of the two oceans that has been referred to uh, uh, consistently throughout this event? Any other thoughts or uh, observations or comments about the significance of 
east and west meeting, these two oceans converging, and what does it mean for us today? Fatima. Um, I would like just to say that um, I think it would be very, very important um, to not uproot, to not allow our tendency to uproot these people from the tremendously complex and interconnected and interrelated cultures in which they lived, which um, shows, uh, allows us to see a lot more of them and not just as two individuals that stand out. I wanted to make a comment on, on this whole question of translation and make the obvious point that's probably really obvious for everyone, but I feel compelled to make it, uh, which is that in every historical time and generation, Muslims adopted languages and made them their own. And so to think about English as anything different from what, you know, what happened with Arabic and then Persian and Turkish and Urdu and Bhasa and you know, uh, every other language, Swahili, uh, to think about it any, any different, uh, English is the language of you know, the next sort of, even for the Muslim generation. So I was reminded of uh, one of the interesting and pointed observation made by a post-colonial critic uh, writing the Caribbean discourse, Edward Glissant, and he talked about how the colonized people and in the post-colonial world, how obviously the colonial languages, English, French, Spanish, Italian, these have become the language, world language, as, as Stephen said, um, but it has never been without people adding what he said, creative distortions. <laughs> and um, so when the whole question about creativity came in, I think that in uh, English, as we know, there are so many words in English that come from so many other languages. Uh, so to think about uh, creative distortions and, uh, and creativity flowing in other ways than even distortions, I think would be an important point to remember. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, you know, we don't look at the world in dichotomized ways about uh, whether it's Muslim spirituality. Uh, yes, uh, Mahmoud mentioned the Metropolitan Museum that has just opened its new galleries and it's absolutely fantastic. But it's not just historical contributions, contemporary, Muslim spirituality is making and continues to make that that contribution as well. So, you know, together with some of the ugly things that happened, the beauty is still very much part of it, and I think we need to remember that as well. So Michael. Uh, I just wanted to add um, one brief comment uh, uh, that relates to the previous session, we were, uh, I was uh, leading on um, Moses and the rock um, when uh, the Quranic passage says um, uh, uh, to Moses to throw down his staff on the rock and it gushes up uh, 12 springs and Ibn al-Arbi talks about it gushing up the constellations. And if one thinks of those 12 springs, um, uh, that diversity as a diversity of cultures and languages and meanings. Um, 
then the riddle at the end of the treatise um, uh, that's just been published by UNCAW, the uh, 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 Treatise of Unification and the Four Birds, the, the riddle that I mentioned, I forgot to ma uh, translate one word that really should be translated. So it, the riddle is, um, whoever understands this ri my riddle is Sakhar bin Sinan. And, um, of course, the word I did, I forgot to translate, was Sakhar, which means rock. Um, so a part of that is um, that, uh, I, I guess, um, the, the, the translation and uh, the movement of culture is always somehow opening the rock into uh, these new flows of meaning um, and these new media of meaning. I will continue uh, on the line of the matter of language again. Uh, we mustn't forget that spirituality is uh, mostly beyond any worldly languages, although apparently it uses the languages of the world, but uh, the voice of silence, which is voice of Hamushan, which is very more important than the spoken languages. That's why, uh, for example, Quran is Arabic, and Abu Jahil was Arab, and he didn't understand Quran. He knew Arabic very well, but he didn't understand. But uh, Salman of Arisi, Salman the Persian, he was not Arab, he understood Quran. Uh, uh, Bilal Habeshi, Bilal the Ethiopian, he was not Arab and he understood the Quran. <laughs> That's why there is something beyond the language. For me, is a Sufism, is a kind of giving an access code to download something. <laughs> uh, I would like to give two examples from uh, Ottoman society about this, uh, the downloading it. Uh, one of them is, uh, do you know, Chishtiya order originated from India and in Turkey, it is not uh, Ottoman land, it is not very well uh, known and it is not separated. There is only one Tekya of Chishti order we discovered was in Konya. The name of Tekya was unspoken Tekya. Söylemez Tekkesi in Turkish. Unspoken Tekya. Why was called this? Because the Sufi master, he is from India originally. He cannot speak Turkish. Anyone ask any question, he cannot answer. <laughs> but, but he has followers, even governor of Konya at that time was follower of him. Many soldiers, many scholars were followers of him, married of him, without spoken. Second example, uh, one another Ottoman Sufi 
from Ushakiya order. He was first a scholar before being a Sufi. He was a scholar. He knows Arabic. He knows Persian. He has tafsir and everything. He's a good scholar. After 40 years, the, the 40 years crisis, and he started to reach a path. And in his dream, he saw a person, and then he find him. He found him. He was a kind of so-called illiterate, a porter, a porter, never went to any school. His Sufi master was a, a cannot speak Arabic, cannot read Arabic, cannot read Persian. Even his Turkish was uh, limited by words. So uh, the scholar became his merit. Scholar says that when I was uh, thinking on the meaning of verse in Quran, I was, re I was asking from my master what is the meaning of this verse. He was telling to me, please just read it, recite it to me, just recite it. When I was reciting in Arabic, he was closing his eyes. Then when I finish him, he says, God says in this ayah is this. And he was explaining everything. And I asked him, oh my master, how do you know this is Arabic and you don't know Arabic? And he replied to me, he said that, do you think that Quran is Arabic? <laughs> <laughs> Mus'haf is Arabic, but Quran is Allahic. Final, final comment from Cecilia. I'd just like to say, following that, that um, even Arabi quotes a poet who said speech is in the heart the tongue only expresses what is in it and after all the rich contributions we've heard um, mm. during this conference I hope we can all agree that both Ibn Arabi and Rumi express the most beautiful speech of the heart mm. Thank you <laughs> Well with with that, we conclude our conference. A big round of applause to our panelists. Thank you so much. And, and a big round of applause for all of you. And a big round of applause, please, for all the organizers who put in so much work to make yeah. this possible. Thank you. Thank you.